0: Glad to be able to be with you all today as we worship God together. And we want to continue worshiping Him, not just in music, uh, but also through the preaching of His Word. I'm going to be speaking this morning uh, from Galatians four to seven, which Celeste just read out for us. And this passage talks all about the extent to which God has gone to redeem us from our sin. And this passage is really key because I think it's far too easy to just glance over. But this slice of scripture has a beautiful, redemptive, Trinitarian message. And so the title of my sermon is From Slavery to Sonship. From Slavery to Sonship. Many of us have heard of John Wesley. Uh, He lived in the 1700s wrote hymns with his brother Charles, and was the founder of the Methodist movement. His life has been well documented. He went to Oxford, and during his time there, he established what was known as the Holy Club. Uh, Only a slightly pretentious name, I think. Uh, There's a lot of feedback there, guys. Everyone in the club studied their Bibles, prayed and fasted. Uh, They did evangelism. Uh, in prisons, provided food, clothing, education for poor children. He sounds like quite the holy man, yes? His devotion and discipline would probably put most of us here to shame. And yet, throughout that entire time, he was not a Christian. He did not truly trust solely in Jesus and only later on in life did he genuinely put his faith in Christ. And looking back on this time in his life, he would later say, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. And I wanna do two things this morning. I wanna explain, first off, what it means to be enslaved spiritually, which is what Paul's talking about here what it means to be enslaved, and number two, what it means to be a son. What it means to be a son. And I wanna show us why this is extremely pertinent to our lives today. So remember, the book of Galatians was written to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia. How's it going there? (laughs) Sorry, Michael, no sweat. book of Galatians was written to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia. And the main purpose behind the Apostle Paul writing this letter was to point these Galatian Christians back to the gospel, right? So certain false teachers, have they were called the Judaizers and they have infiltrated their churches and have convinced them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply not enough, right? They're saying things like, it's not enough to just trust in Jesus. You also need to keep all of the Jewish law and that includes getting circumcised and abiding by the dietary restrictions, not eating pork and all these sorts of things is what they were saying. And really what this kind of teaching boiled down to was this idea that Jesus simply wasn't enough. Sure, he's a great first step, but if you really wanna be saved or sanctified, here's a long list of rules to keep that's really exhausting and then maybe God will be impressed with you. And so Paul writes a letter to these churches reminding them that it's not all this rule keeping of the Jewish law that saved them. It was trusting in Jesus only. By grace alone, through faith alone. That's the backdrop of the passage here. And so point number one, what does it mean to be enslaved spiritually? Take a look at the first verse. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. That's what Paul says. So he's explaining what he's just talked about in the previous chapter, which David preached on last time. But just to give us a quick refresher, the last part of chapter three, starting in verse 23, it says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So as David preached on last time, the Jewish law was the guardian. It was the way people relate it to God. And many commentators it in Jewish culture, as well as ancient Roman and Greek culture, there was a certain age where a child became an adult. And there was a kind of celebration of that. And though there's some differences throughout, the idea that Paul has in mind is that there was a date set by a father for his son and only then on that date and no earlier would he receive his inheritance. Until that time, he would be under a guardian or guardians as well as managers, and they would discipline the boy and he would have a set schedule and rules that he would need to abide by, where he wasn't spoiled. One writer notes that under these conditions, even though he was a son, generally speaking, he would be treated no different than a household slave. Uh, and just a quick FYI, in this context, um, slavery was very different from American kind of slavery. in this. Ancient context, it was not racialized. Um, many slaves would actually choose to remain so because they'd have greater financial freedom and quality of life than if they were freedmen. Um, so, just so we have that understanding. That aside, even though a son was the heir apparent, right from a legal standpoint, he technically owned everything. He would not come into possession of it until the date set by his father. And so Paul's analogy here is that before Jesus came into the world, we lived as slaves, bound to the elementary principles of the world. For the Gentiles or or the non-Jewish people that may have looked like worshiping false gods or practicing paganism, all these sorts of things that they did uh, in their Roman religions, Um, For the Jewish people, that looked more like submitting to their law and their customs of life. And many of us here, like John Wesley, um, if we grew up in church, have had to come to terms with the fact that we needed to repent of our rule keeping and our righteousness. Perhaps some of us still need to repent of it. Um, When I was a kid, I never got involved with any of the stuff other kids at my school did. I, I never smoked or taken any drugs uh, ever in my life. To this day, I've never even tasted alcohol, um, except for that one time at Anglican Communion, and I didn't realize they were using real wine. Um, but by that point, it was kind of too late. Um, but besides that, right? despite this though, right, I still didn't become a Christian until I was 14 because I genuinely thought that my mere abstaining from these substances was one of the things that made me a Christian. And yet, little did I realize that I had absolutely no concept of the Christian gospel message whatsoever. And many of you here may be in that camp, and and what Paul is saying is that our fixation with just trying to be good enough people is enslaving. He's addressing a group of Galatians, many of which would be Gentiles or non-Jewish people who would have a history of worshiping pagan gods and offering prayers and sacrifices to them, and probably in, in some cases living immoral lives from a purely external perspective perhaps but now they turned from their pagan immorality to a Jewish moral system. But Paul is effectively saying, and I love the way John Piper says this, Galatian Christians are in danger of going back to the slavery of their former Gentile pagan religion when they turn to Jewish legalism. And I think for Christians, it's far too easy to just brush it aside and say, yeah, yeah, I know I'm not saved by my works, grace through faith, uh, doctrines of grace, five solas. We may know that with our heads, but yet live as if that's not even true. Right? Just think how we can perform spiritual activities in our own strength without the power of God And I don't think we understand sometimes just how fine the line can often seem. Tim Keller says, the only effort a Christian should put forth is an effort to believe the gospel. And he qualifies it with this. He says, what will truly make us faithful spouses or generous persons or good parents or faithful children is not a redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ. He basically says, stop trying to be more like Christ. That sounds a bit counterintuitive, we probably haven't heard that a whole lot. Rather, he says, it is deepening our understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out of the changes this understanding makes in our hearts. So in other words, just deepening our understanding of the gospel, produces fruit in how we live our lives. And I think this is true because I notice this in myself, Right? how quickly I will take for granted the gospel or simply presume upon the grace of God because subtly I still think he needs something from me before I can approach him. God is not some cranky deity who needs our stuff before we can come to him. He doesn't need anything from us, and that's a good thing. This is what Paul is trying to tell the Galatians because they've forgotten the gospel and instead trusted in their own strength, their own morality, their own good deeds, their own character. And at the end of the day, it's worth nothing. It's not worth anything. The good news of Christianity is what makes it different from every other religion, philosophy, worldview on the planet because we do not, through our own efforts, claw our way up to God. Because the truth is that God is unreachable and He is unattainable for sinners like us. But the good news is that God comes down to us to meet us where we are. Remember, the passage says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. And there's nothing that we can do to take any credit for that. And yet, the lifelong temptation we must face is the constant human inclination to think, I'm good enough. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than those people. Surely that's enough. And it may be true that many of us here don't believe you can earn salvation through works. It may be true that some of us think we can keep it through good works, or at the very least, live our lives as if that's true. But I think J.I. Packer does a great job at tearing down our pride and sense of self-righteousness when he says this, he says man is by nature as completely unable to know God as to please God. We're unable to do it. Let him face the fact and admit it. He says, let God be God, let man be man, let ruined sinners cease pretending to be something other than ruined sinners. Let them realize they lie helpless in the hand of an angry creator. Let them seek Christ and cry for mercy with pride and vainglory." Helpless sinners deny their own helplessness. Can I ask us all something? And I need to preach this to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. But how often are we, helpless sinners, guilty of denying our own helplessness? So if you wanna know what this kind of spiritual slavery looks like, Just look at another of Paul's letters, Ephesians two, one to three. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So in other words, we were enslaved to sin. That's the nature of our slavery. Enslaved to sin, by nature. Just look at the first verse again in our passage. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So, if you want to look at this from the perspective of the heir being the Jewish people and the slave representing all of the Gentiles, Paul's saying, We Jews who kept the Jewish law were really no better off than those pagans over there that we think we're better than. And it really forces us to ask the question what are we trusting in? Because you see, as John Piper said, the devil doesn't really care that you're in church this morning doesn't really bother him. I would even go so far as to say is the devil doesn't really care whether you spend your time in church or spend it down on George Street. Now, let me clarify that. On George Street, yeah, you may be a slave to your passions and lusts and sexual morality and drunkenness, and it's pretty clear to see. It's out in the open. But in church, you may be a slave to your self-righteousness if You trust in your own strength instead of Christ's, and that's quite easy to do. It's a hidden sin, the kind that you can cover up with a suit and tie, or just a friendly smile, or a handshake, and yet it reeks of vanity and conceit and arrogance. Now, for a Christian, committing to a local church is extremely important, right? Do not hear what I'm not saying. Being a Lone Ranger Christian and saying, it's just me and Jesus, right? I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. That's just unbiblical. You can't love Christ, but hate his bride that he purchased by his blood. But I am saying, don't think you're more holier than the buys down on George Street, simply because you are physically in church this morning. The real question is, Is your trust truly in Christ? And look, if you're sitting there thinking of somebody else that fits this description, uh, instead of looking inward at ourselves, then then we're getting it wrong. So Calvary, if we wanna go deeper with Christ, if we wanna have a greater appreciation for the gospel, we must have a more clear understanding of who we are as helpless, Sinners. But perhaps you're here this morning and maybe that description doesn't describe you, right? Maybe maybe you're here and you never grew up in church and you don't identify with being a churchgoer or covering up your sin. Maybe you just grew up in a different context. Maybe you've struggled a lot and maybe your sin is just more out in the open and more overt and maybe you just feel like, hey man, I've just messed up my life, Uh, I'm broken, I need some friends, Uh, but this whole church thing's still a bit weird and I hope nobody here judges me. Listen, if that's you, (laughs) if that's you, you're right where you need to be. And having the honesty to admit, hey man, I've messed up, is huge because if you look at Jesus and the people he hangs out with, so many of them were just social outcasts that simply were honest enough and humble enough to admit their sin and Jesus accepts them. I don't, I don't know how many of you were able to read the words stenciled on the wall uh, in the entryway out there but I keep coming back to them because I think in the kind of spiritual climate we live in in Newfoundland and Labrador and our history of Christianity here, and I think in the face of legalistic religiosity, these gospel truths need to be reiterated. And it says out there, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Jesus does not require any prerequisite to come to him. He doesn't require you to bring a bunch of your own good deeds in order to grow in Him. Your justification, meaning when and if you first trusted in Jesus, and your sanctification, meaning how you continue to live your Christian life, are both by His grace and not of ourselves. And I think that old hymn, Rock of Ages, puts it beautifully, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. That brings me to point two. What does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be a son? And how did we become adopted by God, or how do we? Look at verses four to seven in our passage. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So God sent his son, Jesus, who was born of Mary, was born under the Jewish law, to redeem those also under the Jewish law. But as we've seen, the Gentiles, or or the non-Jewish people, get grafted in. They get included in this. And, And much of these Galatians would have been Gentiles. And the purpose of this redemption was adoption and we receive this gift of redemption and adoption when we believe by faith. When we put our trust in Jesus alone. Because adoption has to be a free gift, right? So if you want to become a child of God, <coughs> repent and trust in Christ. Romans ten nine says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John Stott writes, so the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, He could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. Take a look at verse six again, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Remember those two words, because they're important. Abba, Father. It Sounds pretty similar to Romans 8, 14 to 17 Now take those two passages and compare them with the words of Jesus in Mark 14. He's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, and it says, going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Jesus said, Abba, Father. Abba, by the way, is just an Aramaic term, an endearment, a form of endearment for a father. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. If you're paying attention to those two words, did you notice the connection there? Look how Jesus addresses God the Father. He says, Abba, Father. And what does our passage in Galatians say? God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So by the Holy Spirit, we who are Christians can address the Father in the same way that Jesus does. So in other words, as Michael Reeves says, the status we're all given is the status of the Son himself. We're given precisely nothing less than what the Son himself has. We are invited into fellowship with the Trinity, the one triune God, which is why in John 17, which Pastor Steve's preaching through, Jesus says, you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. With the same love, God the Father loves Jesus, his only begotten Son, he loves us, his adopted sons. Let me say that again. With the same love, God the Father loves Jesus, his only begotten Son, he loves us his adopted sons. Um, There's also, just to clarify, there's a reason the text just uses the language of son, Um, but ladies, this doesn't exclude you. The reason the text says sons and not sons and daughters is to show how we're all given the status of the son, Jesus himself, right? And in this historical context, only a son uh, was made an heir, but the Son, Jesus, invites us all to share in all that he has, all his inheritance. So because we've been made sons and daughters, we are all heirs with Christ when we trust in him. Um, So ladies, this includes you as well, this includes everyone that trusts in Christ for salvation. Uh, In fact, when lecturing on this, my seminary prof encouraged the women um, by reminding them that though it might seem strange in this context to be called a son, men have to come to terms with being a part of the bride of Christ. Um, So we each got our things to deal with, right? (laughs) Michael Reeves says again, we often talk about how God's standards are high and our standards are not high enough, and that is true. But often we think, well, I'll just try a little bit harder then. Um, But if salvation is adoption Trying harder is just simply a wrong category. It's a category mistake. And he goes on to say, because, and listen to this, you can't buy your way into a family. You can't buy your way into a family. Salvation is adoption. And there's no way you can earn it. It has, by its very nature, to be free. It has to be a gift. This is why Christianity is different, because in all our religions, either you strive to please God, or you strive to attain a knowledge of God, and based on this, he either may or may not let you into heaven, or you may or may not have a deeper understanding of the divine, and so on. But at the end of the day, despite your good deeds, or despite your knowledge, or despite your philosophizing, you never actually get to God himself, do you? You never actually get to the person of God. Um, just just a pure example, um, compare Islam, just for example, with this concept of adoption, right? So in Christianity, you have the word of God, and we often call the Bible, right, the written word of God. But what, uh, or rather who else, is known as the word? Anyone? Jesus, okay, there we go. Jesus, so the word is not simply a book, right? It is also a person. Um, One speaker said, in Islam you only have the written word, the eternal Quran, right? The word of God is not a person, and so the best that you can do is simply know more about God. But you never actually get to the person of God himself in Christianity, you, you, know, you don't just know about God through his written word, but through the written word, you actually get to the personal word, Jesus, God, himself. That's the difference. Many of you know, um, and many of you that know me, know that I love golf. And probably the most exciting guy for me to watch play golf is none other than Tiger Woods. And I know a bunch of stuff about him. Uh, I've watched all his famous shots and over and over and over again from golf tournaments 30 years ago. I know which university he went to and all the different swing coaches he had. And I've read books about his upbringing. I've read books about his sports psychology. I can even look at a video of him swinging a golf club and by that alone make a pretty good guess what year the video was taken. Um, because he had multiple changes of his swing throughout his career, and I know each iteration. There was 2000 Tiger, there was 2005 Tiger, there was 2013 Tiger. I know them all. And you may think um, that this makes me a nerd. (laughs) Some of you, like Adam Diamond, uh, may not even think golf is a real sport. (laughs) You would be wrong. That is incorrect. But, needless to say, I know a lot of things about Tiger Woods. But I've never met the guy in my life. I have no idea if we would even get along, if he would like me. I don't know anything about what it may be like to be his friend. Because for all my knowledge about the person of Tiger Woods, I've never actually gotten to know the person himself. This is what Paul is trying to get across. Because for some of us, maybe this describes you. Maybe you know a lot about God, you're religious, you play the part, you say all the right things, you've never actually met Jesus Christ himself. Are you here today and God is not yet your father? then come to him because he does not stand far off with his arms crossed, he stands ready to receive you as his child, if you would but humble yourselves and own your sin before him. But perhaps for others of us, you do know Jesus personally, but it's just been a long time since you had to chat with him After all, that's what these Galatian Christians were going through. They were adopted into God's family, right? But after being adopted, they still felt like they needed to justify their own adoption. They're saying like, hey God, aren't aren't you impressed with me? Look at how good I am, hey. I've given you some pretty good reasons to keep me on as your child. Don't disown me. Can I just put it out there, if that's that's how you view a relationship with God, that must be really stressful, anxiety inducing and just exhausting. Some of you here may even have adopted children yourselves and can I ask, is this how you would treat your adopted child? If they ever mess up too much, then they forfeit their right to be your child or you know, before they can approach you in the morning, they need to win over your love for them by impressing you. And I, I don't think that's how we treat them, or at least not how we should. And how would you react you know, if your child came to you in this kind of posture? Mom, Dad, what do I have to do to earn your love today? So if we, if we who are sinful don't even do that, then how much more will God never disown us or forsake us as his adopted children? So the question is, what, what do we all do with this? Right? Tomorrow, it's Monday morning, what do you practically do with this passage? How should these truths genuinely affect and change the way we live and relate to God? Well, if we are God's adopted children, that means God is our Father. But perhaps for some of you, maybe the view of God you've had since childhood has instead been one of a taskmaster. And sure, many of us here, if we grew up in church, maybe many of us can probably recite, "You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But when was the last time you actually just sat there and pondered what it means to be able to call God Father, because you don't get that with anything else. And, and I know with our heads, you know, if we grew up in church, we believe the right doctrines and you know, five solas, salvation by grace through faith alone. But but if we're truly honest, and there is a disconnect between our head and our hearts, do you still view? Do you still struggle with not viewing God as simply a deity to be appeased? Honestly, truthfully, do you still struggle with that? Because I do. I gossip about something or someone and think, you know, that's worthy of a quick prayer. God forgive me, I'm sorry for gossiping, amen. Okay, on within the rest of the day. But if it's a bigger sin, you know, then prepare yourselves. There's a spiritual campaign that needs to be had to restore the kind of relationship I had with God before. I don't read my Bible for two days straight. That must mean I need to read twice as much the next two days and to make up for it or I'll be distant from God those two days. But if I just push through in my own strength, hopefully I can restore what I lost. And that's just an incorrect view. And that's true. I'm, I'm. getting better with not thinking like this. But um, can anyone here just resonate with that? Or you're all perfect? No, okay. How many of you here who have kids, You know, when your kids screw up, but after apologize and seek for forgiveness, will you give them a cold shoulder until you feel like, well, that's enough time. I'll speak to you again now, child. Maybe this would make sense. Maybe this view would make sense if God was just a savior, but not a father. But he not only forgives us, redeems us, saves us, pardons our sin, he adopts us. That's why Matthew 11:28 to 30 is so precious a passage for me. Because for those of us still slaving away to earn or keep our salvation, or for those who've long ago just given up out of despair, this is the spiritual balm for you. This is the spiritual ointment for you. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like a pilgrim on his journey, we bear on our backs a heavy burden, loaded down with either pride and vanity, and legalism, and self-righteousness, and just a failure to clearly see our own helplessness. Or on the other hand, we carry with us shame, and despair, and self-loathing. Some of us think, I'll show God he made the right choice when he adopted me. Others of us think, why would he ever even want me? The answer is the same to both questions. We need to view God as our Father and we, His children. And if Jesus is the Son of God and we are God's adopted children, then Jesus has become our brother. And that's not a trite thing. <clears throat> Ponder on this gospel truth, because in it you will find Rest, And I'll I'll end with this, J.I. Packer gives six things that a Christian should tell themselves every day. And he says that we should say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. Number one, I'm a child of God. Number two, God is my father. Number three, heaven is my home. Number four, every day is one day nearer. Number five, my savior is my brother. And number six, every Christian is my brother and sister too. Six things a Christian should tell themselves every day. I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. And every Christian is my brother and sister too. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grip me and everyone here with this truth. That when we trust in you, we're not only saved from sin, rescued from judgment, but we are adopted into your family. We are invited into fellowship with the Trinity. And we thank you for that, because you're the only one that gives us that. Only through Christ can we know you as Father. And so I pray, Lord, that as we go throughout the rest of our week, as we head into Monday morning, that we would remember these six things and tell it to ourselves each day. I pray that anyone that is searching or wondering would feel safe to come to you, feel safe to call out to you to ask questions to us here. Um, Father, I pray that we might rest and truly rest and just soak and sit in this knowledge of your gospel and this truth, Lord, that when we trust in you, we are made sons and daughters of God and you will never leave us or forsake us, in Jesus' name. Amen.